Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today is a solo show. So today I'm going to be talking about a random topic that I just have had on my mind lately, and that is in regards to program design. I think there's a you know, there's a lot of evidence-based uh, fitness material out there that you can research and study. Um, however, I would argue that there isn't much combination. I mean, evidence-based anything is a combination of, uh, you could say, science, research, and practical application, right? But there's not a lot of good content out there that talks about the anecdotal stuff, right? The experience-based stuff. And the truth is, is when I came up in the industry, that's all we had. We didn't have all this evidence. So today I want to talk about some still somewhat evidence-based and I'll kind of go through them all and share where I think there is some evidence pointing us in the right direction for it and where there might be lacking evidence and I'm kind of leaning on experience or anecdote uh, for each given category that we're going to go through. But in general, we're going to be talking about program design. I'm going to talk about some things that I will be implementing into my training program here soon uh, as I begin a reverse diet. So today, as I'm recording this, I'm sitting in my office staring at my cute little bulldog over there who um, is actually in trouble. He's not being a good boy today, so he knows to lay in his bed. Um, But I'm sitting here in my office recording today while Travis works away on a YouTube video. So make sure you go check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cody McBroom one. We've been putting a ton of effort into that. And we just had a little meeting today. We are going to step it up even more. Um, It's something we're really, really excited about. Uh, and, And, you know, there's a few things that kind of led into that as well as even the conversation I'm gonna have today around programming. And it's, it's, Things that are changing in the industry that I don't like, that I want to slowly have an influence on um, in the reverse effect, but also simply because it's what I enjoy, right? So um, the YouTube thing, like we're doing more of that because I really enjoy stuff like this. I love sitting down and talking, talking about a topic for 30 minutes or more. I like shooting a YouTube video that's at least 10 minutes and I can talk about a topic and dive deep and really teach. You can't do that so much with, uh, you know, reels. Uh, you can barely do it at all with reels. You can't teach much. And the truth is the algorithm is changing constantly and it's just making it harder to reach people, which can be frustrating as a business owner. But the, the truth is, if I'm being completely transparent with you, uh, our website is a powerhouse. It's a, it's a very, very reliable resource and we have great SEO. Um, so it's not hard to find us. So it's not hurting us that the algorithm changes. It just frustrates me because I started creating content not to build a business although I use it to help with my business, I started creating content to help people. And if the algorithm is changing, making it harder for me to truly help people, that's that's going to frustrate me. That's going to piss me off. So <clears throat> we're doing things like more blogs. I'm working on another fat loss guide that I think is going to be super, super good. Um, and doing podcasts and really diving into topics because that's where I can really over uh, deliver on the value aspect to teach you guys as much as possible. Um, and with that being said, there's some things inside the evidence-based community that I dislike with training as well. And that's kind of what I'm going to cover today. I'm going to cover some unconventional training programming methods or unconventional training methods that I use in the gym and that I'm going to continue using. And as I started writing my next program for the reverse diet phase, which starts next week, um, I'm going to start my reverse right after the shoot, but I'm going to start this new program next week. Um, I'm, I'm going to be increasing volume. I'm going to be increasing some intensification techniques because we're instantly adding a good amount of carbs and the plan is to slowly build that up. And as I, uh, you know, and I've done this with many clients too, a good way to utilize the carbohydrates that you're increasing as you go through a reverse diet 
for body composition changes, for positive body composition changes, is to increase your volume and or intensity in the gym as you do so, right? You can also increase your NEAT if you want to stay lean, but I think a good way to utilize the reverse diet to build muscle or to see a really good like recomp during reverse diet is to do exactly what I'm saying here increase your calories and linearly so parallel to that increase your training volume or intensity what you're doing in the gym and when you do that you're going to better utilize all the calories you're bringing in and especially since most of the time they're going to be primarily carbs so for me uh, i already train on a uh, what i would consider a higher volume program it's how i train um but i've actually trained with a slightly less amount of volume compared to the past and i've done this for two reasons number one i did this because i started really playing around with going to failure and I learned that, you know, for me, an RPE 8 or an RAR 2, it wasn't really the case because I thought I was leaving two reps in the tank until I was like, I'm going to push this to failure. And I hit four more than I expected. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so I was actually six left in the tank when I thought I was two. Um, so I think that it's, it's intelligent to go to failure for that reason, because when I did that, I realized I could actually push the intensity much harder and I could, I could increase my effort in the gym by a, a, a pretty decent amount. I, I, I'm leery to say substantial because I've always trained pretty hard, but this allowed me, kind of gave me permission to get closer to failure and actually go to failure sometimes. And when I started playing with that, I started utilizing uh, what I would call a descending RIR. And that's one of the things I'm going to talk about today. Um, but when I did this, I was playing, kind of walking the tightrope a little bit more, tipping, tipping my toes in the, the water, so to speak, with failure. And I realized that I could be going harder, but if I was going to go harder, I had to lower volume. And this is where I think you know, there's these people arguing about high volume versus low volume. And a lot of times there's a, there's people doing high volume that respond really well, but they're not going balls to the wall. And there's people that do low volume, but they go balls to the wall. Well, it's all equally self out because total volume accumulated from the people going balls to the wall is high because they're lifting heavy weights for less sets per week. And the group that's doing lower weights is still accumulating that amount of volume, but they're just doing it over more sets since they're lifting lighter weights. So I think it's kind of semantics. However, I think the sweet spot is a moderately high amount of volume while pushing that intensity. Um, so it's basically going right in the middle of volume, landmarks, volume uh, sets per muscle group per week, and then increasing your intensity to the place that it really needs to be, and then creeping up volume until you reach that point where you're at kind of like MRV, which is maximum recoverable, where you don't want to stay there for too long because uh, it's very hard to recover from. Um, but as I've done this, I've, I've kind of found my sweet spot, and I've found that you know everything kind of sits in. So like for me, legs is always around at least 10 sets per muscle group per week, but I don't go over 15 because once I go over 15, I start crushing myself. So typically what I do, I, I usually sit around in between 10 to 15 for quads, 10 to 15 between hamstrings. I don't really isolate my glutes outside of activation drills. Um, not that you shouldn't or you can't, but I just don't have desires to grow my glutes and my glutes aren't like dysfunctional or weak. So it's easy for them to just get hit as a byproduct of squatting and deadlifting and doing glute ham raises and RDLs, stuff like that. Um, and then for the upper body, it's usually between 15 to 20. And uh, except for my arms, because arms are going to be hit secondary so much. But my point is, I found that sweet spot. And then I started kind of pushing harder with my uh, intensity. And I've learned a lot. And I started really kind of picking apart some of the evidence based stuff. And I think that's one of them, you know, I think that and, and that's what inspired me to do this podcast, because as I started building out this program, my first jump was to increase the days per week. So I'm not really increasing volume per se, because uh, I'm still doing the same amount of sets per week per muscle group, but I'm doing six days instead of five days a week when I go into this reverse. So I'll be training more frequently, which is going to really just spread out that volume more. And it's allowed me to push a little bit harder and a little bit heavier as I increase my calories and I'm able to do so um, with a more sufficient intake, so to speak. Um, 
And as I was doing that, I started writing out, what do I want to do? How do I want to create this program? And I started, it started by me going way back to like old John Meadows stuff. And if you haven't done a deep dive into the mountain dog, um, he's passed away now, but there's just archives of amazing content and eBooks and YouTube videos and things that he's written over the years. And there's just so much gold in there. Um, so I actually started just going through a ton of stuff. And I've, I remembered these like things that I would do in the past that he, that I learned from him that worked really well. Um, and he is a, he is an evidence-based practitioner, but he was really good about teaching how, you know, evidence in the gym is just as good as evidence with research. In fact, it's more empirical because we see it right in front of us and we can't argue with that. And there's also a lot of times where evidence might say, show us something, but the, the, the research done is using participants that might not line up perfectly with you or to the level of advancement that you're at, right? So if we're looking for, uh, changes in body composition and fat loss, metabolism and, and muscle and things like that. But we're using participants that aren't in the right category of people for us to really make a judge, judgment or a good assessment on what we would expect. It's hard to take it for face value, right? So because of that, um, I like using a combination of both is what I'm really getting at here. And I wanted to record this podcast today because I think there's some unconventional methods that I'll be adding in that I think that um, are very, very useful that I think that you can take away from this podcast. It's going to be somewhat of a rant, as you can already imagine, especially when I'm by myself. But I, I typically find that you guys like that a lot. So I hope I'm not misspeaking uh, by saying this, but I've gotten a lot of good reviews and good feedback from people who say like, man, that podcast really taught me a lot. And a lot of times it's when I sit down by myself and I think about a specific topic and I just kind of go off on a rant and I talk about my experience, my training, what the evidence says, how I'm doing things. And uh, it seems like it helps a lot. So that's what my goal is today. Um, speaking of reviews and everything, before I do get in the podcast, I just want to mention real quick, if you have not left us a five-star rating review on Spotify or iTunes, um, whether you've left it on one, not the other, or you've not left it on either, please go do so because it, it truly does help us more than you realize. So leave us a five-star rating and review. If this podcast helps you, make sure you go subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cody McBroom one, because we are really trying to grow that. And there's a lot of valuable content there. So if you like the podcast, I know you'll like that. Even for the long form educational videos that like we just aired one on uh, understanding how to individualize your uh, diet based on your individual metabolism and what the research shows around individual metabolisms and phenotypes and things like that, metabolic adaptation, so on and so forth. Um, and that's not going to be on the podcast, but it's a 20 minute video where I go super in depth on all these topics. And if you like this podcast, I know you'll love that. And you can just push play and walk and listen, just like you would a podcast. You don't always have to sit down and watch because a lot of that is talking. Um, that being said, into the podcast. The first thing that I will be adding into my program, um, and so you guys know, as always, I'm going to add this into the Taylor Trainer eventually. Um, it might wait until the new app launches because I don't think we're so crazy far away and I still need you know, at least a couple months, if not three, to test these this new program out. Um, but the training split is a little unorthodox, very similar to pure bodybuilding. So if you're in the Taylor Trainer or you're getting ready to go into it, you can check out pure bodybuilding, which is the program I followed for my photo shoot. And that program is a five-day split, um, and it goes. I'm going to pull it up so I can tell you guys exactly how it is. Um, it is chest and back. I'm trying to remember how it goes. It's very unorthodox. It's different. It's not your typical upper lower or anything like that. Um, so pure bodybuilding. I'm in the app right now. Um, it is chest, back, and abs. So I hit 
we hit abs three days a week, chest, back, abs, then it's legs and arms, then it's shoulders, lats, and abs, then it's a rest day, and then it's chest, legs, abs, and then it's traps, shoulders, arms, and then rest. So five days a week, um, very unorthodox. And, and the reason it's unorthodox is because truly when we're trying to optimize our training and our frequency and our training split and all these things, it's not so much about what is kind of been written in stone, right? What's in the textbooks? What, what do people do? They do full body, push pull legs, upper, lower. But the truth is, is what we're trying to do with a good training program is we're just trying to organize our schedule of training to make sure that we're organizing our volume intensity accordingly. So are you recovering adequately? Are you doing sessions that are conflicting with other sessions? Are you organizing your, your exercises in a way that is beneficial? Or is one exercise bleeding into the next, causing that one to decrease in performance or cause joint pain, right? These are the things we're thinking about. So when I do chest, back, and arms, I know for a fact that my elbows and my biceps and triceps are all already tired by the time I've already done chest and back. So the typical thing would be to do all of upper body. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I were to push the volume like I want to, and I was doing chest, back, and then arms, my arm training would suffer because I just blasted my chest and back. Well, now I can go a little bit higher in volume on my chest and back and then just be done. And then the next day I do legs and save my arms and then my arms can get done at the end of the session. And now my arms are completely fresh when I go into it. Um, and that alone was such a game changer for me. And it's, cha it's, it's been really cool to change how I'm programming based on aesthetic changes. You know, for strength, I wouldn't rec recommend this necessarily, but for bodybuilding, physique enhancement, male or female, just gen generally looking at body composition changes, I think organizing your training in a way like this that is more about being able to fit the right amount of volume in and avoiding joint pain or decreases in performance in secondary muscle groups is the way to go. And that's kind of what I've done here. And so this new program is, uh, it's a different split as well, but it's six days a week. So what I have here is, pull up my notes, uh, legs and abs on Monday. Uh, and this is going to be a quad dominant day, which I'll get into in a sec. Then I have Tuesday is chest and back. Uh, Wednesday is shoulders and arms. And then I repeat. So it's kind of like a push pull legs, but it's legs and abs, chest and back, shoulders and arms, legs, abs, chest, back, shoulders, and arms. But what I'm doing is the first leg day is quad dominant. So I have 10 sets of quads, five sets of hamstrings. So I'm just going to like, I'm doing three different exercises on quads, really crushing them. I'm going to get into what the method is with those three soon. And then I have five sets of the single exercise, just one good exercise that's just generally great to throw in for uh, an isolation exercise for hamstrings. Chest and back, same thing, 10 sets of chest. So I'm gonna go really hard on the chest with the same method that I did on the quads. And then five sets of last, lats, three sets of traps. So there's more total work there, but it's an upper body, it's easier to do that. Um, shoulders and arms, same exact thing. 10 sets of shoulders, four sets of biceps and triceps. Now later in the week, I flip it. So the next leg day is 10 sets of hamstrings, five sets of quads. 10 sets of lats, five sets of chest, and three sets of traps stays the same because traps are going to get hit with your leg day a little bit. They're going to get hit anytime you carry a dumbbell or a weight. They're going to get hit on your shoulder day a little bit. So they're kind of a muscle that's going to be, you know, touched throughout the week regardless in my activation, my warm-up, stuff like that. Um, then I have shoulders and arms as well, and then it's going to be five sets of shoulders, 10 sets of biceps and triceps. So we're switching everything throughout the week so that I'm not just hammering the same amount of volume on the same muscle groups every single session. Um, so that's the first thing is having this unconventional method and understanding that, you know, the art of programming comes down to really just understanding how frequency and training organization, 
i.e. training split, is just a way to do just that. It's organizing your training. It's organizing your exercises, your body parts to maximize volume, maximize performance, and maximize recovery. And so when we can play with things and not be like so written in stone with how we need to do things, we can actually optimize that even more so for the physique. Um, You know, the next thing is the methods that I was talking about, right? So this is like kind of the exercise sequencing, if you will. So the sequencing of my programming has always been pretty steady. I mean, I have a very specific method, right? We, we activate, we prime, we overload, and then we add in the specialization aspect. Specialization could be isolation. It's usually metabolic, right? So metabolic is going to be um, either cardio. So that's where you throw high-intensity cardio or it's, it's isolation work where we're doing high, high reps. But you kind of, you progress the session based on uh, neurological fatigue and skill acquisition, right? So you're doing a heavy squat at the beginning of your session after activation because the activation prepares you for it. The priming uh, neurologically, so it primes your nervous system for it and gets your movement prep there. The, it's like a warm-up. It's like a warm-up on steroids. Then we have overload, which is the squat itself. And then we have other stuff later, squat, uh, leg extensions, leg curls, sled pulls, anything like that comes later because it doesn't require as much skill. It doesn't require as much mental capacity and the injury risk is much lower. So you want to do the things that require a lot of those things at the beginning of the session. But there's more to it with what I'm going about right now with this next program. So with this next one, the goal is essentially to purely it's about hypertrophy. So I'm actually not wasting much time on priming. I'm still going to warm up, still going to do activation. So that always comes first. So warming up the the hamstrings or the quads, warming up the chest and the back, whatever we're doing that day, I want to prepare for that movement. So on a squat day, I might do very, very light leg curls and leg extensions, right? Or if you have stuff like I have, then what I would recommend is backward sled drags and seated leg curls, right? Something that's going to prime your, uh, your, your hamstrings, get them all loosened up, but then also you pull the sled that's going to fire up your quads, it's going to work your ankle mobility, knee stability, it's just good for you, get your heart rate up a little bit. Perfect example of what to do before a squat day. On a deadlift day, I might still do sled, but I probably would switch up the, the leg curl for some kind of glute variation, Glute bridge, hip thrust, something like that. Lightweight, just just get a good pump in the glutes. Uh, get your hips mobile and ready and prepped for deadlifting. Um, and then on an upper body day, if it's a bench day, I might do like light dumbbell bench press or push-ups with some kind of face pull, right? So very easy, but I'm just warming up everything on the upper body before I go into it. Then we go into the actual movements. And the way I'm specifically doing these movements is based on the dominance of the day. So on a quad dominant day, for example... The first session is quad dominant and we are doing squats, then leg extensions, and then either Bulgarian split squats or Nordic, uh, reverse Nordic curls, which I would prefer because you can do a bilateral. Um, but what we're doing here is something I stole from John Meadows and I just love it. It's such a good method. And this is exactly where we can't really take research from this because a lot of research will show, you know, <laughs> stretching for hypertrophy is there. It's clear that it works, but it's very uh, minimal. So we can't like hang our hat on it yet there's a lot of people who are very experienced in trenches that swear by it i i have seen growth from it and i've also felt way better with my joints from it i also know that a stretched fiber is uh is going to grow like that's a a, a proxy for hypertrophy it's going to lead to growth it's breakdown um i also know that the pump is very important and i also know that progressive overload is very important so how can we sequence these things in a way that is going to optimize all of them in one session creating a, a a very high amount of exhaustion to the muscle and that's 
one thing a lot of people don't think about. If we're doing like a very high frequency program, we're never really truly taking a muscle to complete exhaustion on a full body program, for example. If you hit your quads four days a week, great. Even if your volume is just as high, you're never taking it to complete exhaustion. And I would argue that even if strength and volume are equated, but one program we take a muscle to complete exhaustion versus the other one we do not, I I think the exhaustion one's going to pan out better as long as we can recover, which is why I only do this once a week. And the second day is just a light quad day. So heavy squat staying in the six to eight rep range typically, but we could venture that to say just five to 10 rep range, but you're overloading. This is where we're trying to build uh, strength upon it. Um, I'm going with a heels elevated safety bar hand supported squat. So I'm holding the rack and I'm doing squats with my heels elevated and the safety bar on my back. It's just more comfortable on my shoulders and it allows me to kind of like really, really isolate my quads. And that's what I'm focused on here. So that one is a full range of motion, heavy squat that I'm trying to lift heavier week by week in that five to 10 rep range. Um, so I would typically recommend going linearly there. I'm going to be doing, um, six to eight reps. So I'll probably go like eight, seven, three, or I'm sorry, uh, eight, seven, six. Um, and then we're going to have, make some changes after every two to three weeks, which I'll explain in a sec. Um, then we go into a leg extension. So now that I've, I've overloaded the quads, I'm going to, uh, fatigue the quads by metabolic with metabolic training. And this is going to be metabolite accumulation working in the metabolic fatigue range, um, high reps, right? So I'm staying in the generally the 10 to 20 rep range. For me, my program is going to be 15. I like the 15 rep ranges for leg extensions. They feel good. Um, and I think it should be exercise dependent. Like we all know, for example, like I don't like bench press over eight reps. I just don't feel good doing it. I got to stay six or less. I get a, I can get a gnarly pump, great overload, great stimulus. Um, no joint pain. If I stay like five, five to seven reps, right? That's a good zone for me. I would say three to six rep range is a great zone for me on a heavy barbell press. When I go eight, 10, 12 reps, I just, my joints hurt. Like I don't feel the pump as much kind of goes away. It's not heavy enough. I don't like it on a chest fly. I don't like going below 10, right? So we all know there's certain exercises that do better, even if it's not just isolation, right? So on a high bar back squat, I generally hurt my back whenever I go below five reps and I just don't enjoy it nearly as much. But I love the burn that I feel when I go eight plus and I feel great. My joints don't bang, get banged up. So we all have those, those exercises and rep ranges that are associated with it. Pay attention to those because those matter. Um, but the overload is the quads. Then we're going into the leg extension to fatigue it. 15 reps, really strong contraction. I'm just trying to drive as much blood into the muscle as possible, contract it as hard as possible. Um, and this is, again, this is like old school bodybuilding techniques taken from uh, John Meadows. Like he, this is exactly how you would set it up. He calls it a little bit different. This is just kind of how I interpret it. And this is how I've used it. And I really like it because I've tested out some of these things lately again like I did in the past. Um, and after I do four sets of that, as well as four sets of squat, that's eight total sets. I'm going to do two sets of stretch, overload stretch. So we're doing resisted stretch. We can do this with a Bulgarian split squat in a unilateral position where we're pausing at the end range or a Nordic reverse Nordic curl, which I really enjoy because um, you can stretch both quads at once and it burns. But basically what we're trying to do is overload the tissue, then exhaust and fatigue the tissue. And then we're going to stretch the tissue of the quad. And what we've done here is we've utilized every aspect uh, of training in, in stimulant, stimulation, in tension, essentially, and stress that causes the muscle to grow in a single session. We've done it in a sequence that is perfectly aligned to work together synergistically. Your quads will be screaming for days. My quads were literally, they literally were crying at me. <laughs> My gym partner said the same thing days later. It was funny. Um, and then on the next leg day, I'm not going to do all that. I'm literally doing... RDLs. So we're overloading the RDL. Then I'm going to do a leg curl 
just like I did the leg extension in the squat. And then we're going to do a, uh, a stretch variation. So probably a good morning where we're going to really work on stretching the quad. And you can even do like a pull through or something like that. Um, but either way, we're just trying to overload the quads in a stretch position after doing four sets of each of those. And then I'm going to finish with some unilateral leg extensions. So again, leg extensions are very neurologically easy to recover from. It doesn't take much brain power. It doesn't zap my nervous system. And I can focus on isolating and fatiguing the muscle. And I'm just do that five sets of just that one exercise. So now I'm, I'm, my frequency is optimal from what we see in research, which shows at least twice a week is optimal. Uh, going three, four, five doesn't really seem to improve hypertrophy much, but we do know that two, three, four is better than one. So I'm hitting each muscle group twice a week. I am doing each muscle group with a, an exhaustion day and then a pullback like light day. Um, and I'm flipping it throughout the week. So my frequency is high. My overload is high. My metabolic fatigue is high. I'm stretching the muscles throughout the week, which is going to help hypertrophy as well as joint health, in my opinion. Um, again, limited research because we can't really say for sure that it avoids injuries, but we do know that people who have injuries in specific places and implement stretches for those joints tend to improve injury reduction as well. Um, so that is kind of the method and sequences. So on a chest day, it'll be bench, chest fly, and then uh, another variation of chest fly. Um, or actually, I think it goes bench press and then a dumbbell squeeze press, and then it was a chest fly with a big pause at the stretch position, right? Uh, on a lat day, it is a uh, iliac row for the overload. We are doing a pull down for the fatigue, and then we are doing uh, pullovers for the lat uh, stretch movement. And we did, we did bench pullovers with a cable, and somebody actually has to pull the cable out and get it to you. Oh my God, it was brutal. Um, but we're doing this for every... Uh, every single body part except shoulders. Shoulders is the only one because you can't really stretch the shoulders very effectively because of the way the muscle is. But what we're doing is, is essentially the same exact protocol for every muscle. Um, so this is the first thing we're adding in. The next thing is we're changing the phases every two weeks. Um, I believe that exercise variation is on a spectrum. I think that you can change your exercise variations more often the more you progress in training. And this would be supported in research, in my opinion, it, depending on how you interpret the research. And the reason I say that is because what we see in research is that, uh, you know, the repeated bout effect and progressive overload, all those things require us to do the same thing over and over and over again, which means that if we don't repeatedly do the same thing week after week, it's going to be very hard to progressively overload it, seeing how we have to actually progressively overload the movement itself in order to get better. And part of that is neurological, which means that if we don't do the same thing and get better at it from a skill perspective and allow ourselves to increase the weight as we go, it's going to be very hard to progressively overload, Right. Well, the only way to progressively overload, overload is to repeat the movement over and over again. Hence why most research shows that we have to follow the program for multiple weeks. That's why most blocks or mesocycles are weeks on end. However, most research on this stuff isn't done on very advanced individuals. And the reason I think that it's okay to switch variations actually more often is because anecdotally speaking, if we look at some of the best bodybuilders in the world, a lot of them change their exercises on the fly. They will just kind of do what feels right to them, which is like the least scientific thing you could do. However, they know their body and they know how to train. So if I go into the gym today and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to do a hammer press, chest press. I'm going to do a Smith machine bench press. I've done both of those a million times. I know how to activate my chest. I know how to press with my arms. I, like, I know how to do this. So there's no learning curve. Whereas somebody who's brand new is like, all right, well, let me figure out how this machine works. Let me take a few steps to warm up to it and get used to it neurologically speaking, then ramp up my weight because I really don't know how much weight I lift on this. Whereas somebody who's very advanced can go to that same movement and go, this is how to do it. 
This is how I activate the muscles associated with it. And this is how much weight I normally do on it, right? So they can get right into it and go to failure immediately if they need to. So because of that, um, I think as you get more experience, you have the right to uh, vary uh, your exercise selection more often. And because of that, in this program, I'm going to be exercise swapping exercise every two weeks outside of the compound lift. Um, now, I would say there's going to be an intuitive approach here too. So let's say we get two weeks in and it's time to switch exercises, but one exercise is feeling really good. I'm enjoying it. I'm progressing with it. The pumps are insane. I'm not going to change it because it's a great exercise, obviously. Why would I change what's not? broken. Um, but if something's stale, I'm going to move it. I'm going to change it. The movement patterns are most important. The muscle groups and the volume associated are most important. So if I'm doing a neutral shoulder supinated grip curl, I'm going to pick a different neutral shoulder supinated grip curl variation that is going to stimulate my mind, my enjoyment, my intensity, my, the pump, everything that I need just as much, if not more, because I've gotten, this last one's gotten stale. Okay. That being said, um, the compound lifts are going to change every two weeks, but they're not going to change from a movement or an exercise selection. So I still will be doing the safety bar squat variation that I mentioned. However, after two weeks, I'm going to add accommodating resistance with bands. And then after two more weeks, it'll be chains. So this is, again, something that is much more in the uh, Dave Tate Elite FTS, West Side Barbell uh, kind of powerlifting scene where they would do a lot of added bands and chains. And I think there's a lot of value in there. Um, for strength, but not that many people use it for bodybuilding outside of John Meadows and maybe a few more, like you'll see people throw bands onto hack squats and stuff like that. And there's really not much research to prove it's better for hypertrophy. Uh, the, the theory mainly is that we are changing the resistant curve or the strength pattern profile, right? So what that means is when we're doing a squat, for example, at the bottom of the squat is the maximum tension, which means the hardest part of the squat is the bottom. When we get to the top, it's kind of like a rest. It's the easiest part. There's least, the least amount of tension. However, if you have a band pulling you down, the bottom is the, is just is the same because the band loosens at the bottom. So you just have the load that you normally do. And as you squat up, it gets harder from the band. But normally it gets easier as you stand up because there is no band. So accommodating resistance means that resistance is being applied as you squat, which means that it levels out the strength curve, which means that the difficulty never fucking changes, which is awesome because that means the bottom of the squat is no longer the hardest. The entire squat is a difficult, right? And I think there's some value in there because it's going to create more total tension. So if we are doing a squat, not for just general leg hypertrophy or general leg strength, but we are doing it specifically for quad strength, there might be some value in increasing the amount of total tension created within the duration of that set for the quads. Um, so I think there's value. The other thing I would say too is that we know that this could be a way to progress or make the movement more challenging or even overload it a little bit without actually adding load to the bar. And in my experience, that is a good way to uh, progressively overload without worrying about joint health. So if I'm focused on bodybuilding and I don't care about the number on my on the bar, and I shouldn't even say bodybuilding because for those of you listening, if you're focused on hypertrophy, fat loss, body composition changes, strength, but not like to the point where you're going to compete in powerlifting and you need to see the bar, say 300, 400 pounds, whatever it is that you want to lift, you're more focused on how you look and how you feel. Well, adding bands can be a way that allows us to achieve progressive overload without potentially risking joint health. Um, and it feels good. So we're going to go two weeks of progressing with bands and then two weeks of chains. Chains work very similarly. Uh, as you squat, there's like less chains on the floor essentially. So when I squat down, the chains are touching the floor. When they touch the floor, it actually like lifts some weight off of you, your shoulders, quite literally. Because like imagine if you were doing something and somebody lent, lent you a hand. 
Like that's what the floor is doing. It's lending you a hand and picking up some of the chains for you so it's not as heavy. But the bottom of the squat is always the most difficult anyway, and that's where you have the, the most tension from the bar. But as you squat up, the chains lift off the ground slowly and it becomes more difficult at the top. Um, so the it's not as brutal as bands in my experience, but it still works really well. And therefore you can't use bands as consistently, meaning you can't do it for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. But the way we're going to cycle this is six week blocks. So we'll go two weeks of regular linear progression with just load, two weeks of accommodating resistance with bands, and then two weeks of accommodating resistance with um, chains, one full deload week, and then we rinse and repeat and start from the beginning. Uh, and that's where we're, uh, again, there is research to show the benefit in these things, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence in powerlifting. I think tweaking it and utilizing it for bodybuilding and, and physique enhancement can be um, more of a stretch when we look at the literature, but in my experience, it works really well. Uh, in my own experience, for my joints, it feels really good and the people I've worked with, and therefore, we're gonna, I'm going to use it. So another thing that is quote-unquote evidence-based, but a lot of science-based people try to stay away from, uh, and the problem with that is pretty simple. Like, People that are too focused on science neglect strategies and methods like this that could potentially work really well and could really just be fucking fun and challenge you. And if you're having fun, you're being challenged and you're more motivated to train the gym, you are way more likely to push yourself harder. And that's ultimately what's going to lead to the best results possible. So I think we can't get too sunken into the uh, process of science-based anything if it's going to contradict our ability to have fun or sacrifice our ability to have fun and be motivated and train really hard, right? Because you can be as science-based as you want, but if it's causing you to train, uh, like if it's causing you to never go to failure, it's causing you to train like a wimp, it's causing you to never push the boundaries, it's causing you to never experiment in the gym, I think you're, you're, you're using something that's supposed to be for good and you're making it a really fucking negative, boring thing. It's making your training stale, boring, and less effective, right? And I'm all about science. We have a chief science officer on our staff. I'm constantly researching things, looking up studies, getting advice from him, but it's about utilizing both aspects in order to create the best uh, program possible. Like that's really what evidence-based is and that's what great coaches do, um, Okay, so uh, I've covered unconventional splits, uh, how the sequencing of my programs are going to be going, and they have been going to an extent. Um, variation and how that, it's spectrum. It, it, your ability to vary exercises increases as you experience, uh, goes up, and then how I'm going to be adding bands and chains. The last thing is choosing my exercises. So these are all strategies that are going to go into this next program. And they're all strategies that honestly tend to go into most of my programming and in my work with clients. And again, it's all based on this, this truly evidence-based strategy of being a true coach and a true programmer with a lot of experience, I mean, over a decade of experience and also valuing the research. So knowing that it's not just about science and it's not just about anecdote, but it's about combining those two things to make the best program possible. Now, the last thing is based on uh, how to choose exercise effectively. And we did shoot a YouTube video about this. So if you want more detail on it or if you want to see it in action and actually see how this would look like on like a Google sheet, for example, because we literally pull one up on the screen, you can check that out. We do have one on the YouTube channel. Um, and it's called like, uh, how to individualize a program or how to create your own training program or something like that. And it's really, really good. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes, but again, you can just go to youtube.com slash Cody McBroom one, um, really, really good way to show you, but essentially we have, uh, let's see here, seven different variation or different categories or things I'm going to talk about right now, just briefly that allow you to choose the best exercises possible. And that's goal specificity, the pump and how it feels joint pain and injury risk, progression, potential, stimulus to fatigue ratio, enjoyment, and challenge. 
Now, what these things allow us to do is pick the best program possible for us. And why that's important is because everybody has different limb lengths, different posture, different strengths, different weaknesses, different instabilities, different strengths of stability, different mobility, flexibility, um, different goals. And ultimately, they have different perceptions of exercises, which is why... I think that, you know, there's some people out there that will say like, oh, the hip thrust just trains this one part of your glute and not the whole glute. It doesn't actually train your glute med, like just trains your paraphemoris and they get way too geeky with biomechanics that, and use evidence-based quote unquote strategies that aren't actually even like, there's no real evidence on some of the strategies they use. Um, and I think they take it too far. Like, I think there's people who utilize biomechanics in a really intelligent way. And I think there's people who take it too far and don't have enough experience training real fucking people to actually understand how important things like this are. These are not rocket science things, but these are things that we can't ignore. And being a trainer for over 10 years and training myself for over 10 years, I know certain things that biomechanics doesn't always explain. And it's not because uh, I have some specific method. It's because I am uh, N of one. I am a different individual. I'm a little snowflake. Nobody is like me which means that certain things are going to feel certain ways to me. And even if that's a, a, a psychological perception of how it's working, it is working differently for me. And I think we have to consider that. So number one, goal specificity. This one is backed up by research and science and evidence. And it's not necessarily as much about, um, you know, this slight tweak in your ankle dorsiflexion and shit like that. It's more along lines of, oh, you want to build your glutes. Okay, well, then we need more volume on the glutes. Right, so choosing exercises based on where you're focused is important. We should be placing more volume in certain areas. We should also be placing exercises that are more geared towards our goal. Um, so if it's a squat, for example, everybody should be squatting regardless of the goal. However, I'm doing a very, very specific squat to isolate my quads. This variation of squat allows me to overload. It allows me to have a better range of motion. It allows my, uh, my quads to get stimulated better. Like I'm doing everything humanly possible to focus on my quads because my goal is specifically to hypertrophy or grow my quads, right? The next one was the pump in the field. If you don't feel it in the target muscle, something's wrong. I don't care if they say that this is the best exercise for this muscle group and there's research to prove it. If you don't specifically feel it, you are either doing it wrong or it's just not the best exercise for your specific biomechanics, your limb length, your posture, your body, your movement capabilities and skill like training and movement is a skill so if you can't feel the right muscle like if you're doing tricep pushdowns and you're like man this really burns my traps something's wrong right you got to either change how you're doing it or it's just not the right to exercise for you so you should be getting a pump in the right muscle you should be feeling it in the right muscle and that's something that is going to allow us to know that we are using the right muscle and we are targeting and growing the right muscle Joint pain and injury risk. If you're doing an exercise and it's it's said to be the best exercise, maybe you're even getting stronger in it and you feel the muscle really well, but every time you do it, your joints hurt, right? Like you should probably change the exercise. Until you can fix the flexibility, mobility, instability, whatever it is that is causing you to have pain, you should just change the exercise. Your exercise selection should support what feels good and doesn't bang up your joints or cause further injury, which could be starting by just some achy joints in the beginning, and then it turns into literal joint injury. And what I would say with that is there's a time and a place to rehab, right? So for some people, if they're like, I can't squat at all because I'm in pain, I would probably go down the rehab route because there's a lot of reasons why you should be able to perform the squatting pattern, not necessarily with a bar on your back, but just squat in general. Now, if somebody's like, like, for example, like barbell bench press does bug my anterior shoulder on the right side after a while. I'm sorry, left side after a while. And it's a bicep tendon thing. I already know because I'm trying to rehab it because I want to bench press. 
But right now, I just don't barbell bench press. I'm using a neutral bar or I'm doing dumbbells. And my chest is growing, feeling good, strength's progressing. Like, I don't need this barbell bench press in order to progress my chest. I really only need it if I'm competing in barbell bench press. Or because I just, like, literally desire the ability to do a barbell bench press. I don't like the idea of not being able to do an exercise. Period. That's fine. I can go down that route. But if I'm like, I could give a fuck about the barbell bench press. Well, then I'm just going to switch it. I don't need it. There's no perfect exercise. So paying attention to your body, being aware of joint pain and insights on what could potentially lead to injury, whether that's overuse injury, just weird joint positions, whatever it may be, avoid that exercise if that's the case. Progression potential. Progression potential is pretty simple as well. Progression potential is exactly how it sounds. Do you have a good potential to progress this exercise? So that squat variation I talked about for, for my quads that I'm doing, the heels elevated, safety bar, hand-supported squat. I see a lot of potential in my growth there because it's a new exercise variation I just started doing. It feels really good. So I had no joint pain the next day. I got a crazy pump. I was sore. Um, I enjoyed it. Like it was just a solid fucking exercise. So I see that I could go heavier in it and I know I could build strength in it because I felt like I probably could have pushed it a little bit further, but it was my first time doing it. So I literally just started doing it. And there's a reel. I posted a reel of it on my story um, or I mean on my Instagram. And, uh, but I see the potential there. So I'm going to continue progressing that because I know I can grow that movement, right? There's a potential progression. Um, SFR, stimulus to fatigue ratio, which is built by, uh, was uh, created, the term was created by Mike Ezertel. It's a great term. Uh, the stimulus to fatigue ratio is pretty simple. If I get a lot of stimulus out of it, so like that squat variation, I have a very high, a great stimulus to fatigue ratio. I get a ton of stimulus out of it. I crush the muscle. I can progress it. I felt sore the next day. My, I could literally feel the pump. I didn't have a little back pain, anything like that. Um, and the fatigue wasn't insane. Like I wasn't like lethargic for days. My joints didn't hurt. It didn't like zap my nervous system. So the, the fatigue was low. The stimulus was high. That means the ratio for stimulus to fatigue was great. I'm going to choose it. Now, a deadlift off the floor is not a great exercise for me for hypertrophy because the stimulus is decent. I mean, I get a really good like neurological stimulus for strength, but I can't pinpoint any one area where I get a good pump, burn, soreness, anything like that. I'm just kind of dead all over, right? So it's super high fatigue. It's a great strength exercise. Most strength exercises have a high fatigue. It's what part of building strength is neurological and that's going to happen, but there's not even a real direct muscular stimulus for me. So it's not the best exercise for that because it has a, a poor stimulus fatigue ratio. Um, enjoyment and challenge are the two last things, plain and simple. Like I said, this exercise challenged me and it was fun. I really enjoyed trying it out, doing it. I'm, I'm excited to progress it. That's, that has a high enjoyment factor and it is challenging. It is not an easy movement, but I'm capable. So if you go through this list and you look at an exercise as you're building a program or you're swapping exercise, so maybe you're in the Taylor trainer, which is at taylortrainerapp.com. <laughs> you can head there now. Uh, maybe you're doing this and you're like, okay, it calls for a high bar squat, I just don't like high bar squats. They don't feel good. I don't like the bar on my back. I'm going to do a safety bar hills elevate squat. I'm going to do a Smith machine squat. I'm going to do a leg press. Cool. Those are all squat mechanics. Those are literally all the same movement pattern. But if the leg press is better for your goal specificity, you get a better pump and you feel better doing it. You have less joint pain and there's a lower injury risk with it. You see more progression with it because the joint pain is lower and you get a better feel and it's more specific to your goals. The stimulus to fatigue ratio is awesome. You enjoy it and it's challenging you. That's the exercise you should do. So you can use these, these categories to choose your exercise or sub exercise as you're using another person's program. Um, and these are the things that kind of go into my 
my program design, honestly. And I guess that's what this is, is really about, like unconventional methods for program design. Like that's, that's what this podcast should be called because ultimately this, these are the things that I go over when I'm creating a plan for the tailored trainer, for myself or for a client. And I think they'll help you tremendously to create your own plan or to swap out and substitute things in, in a plan that you're following like something in the tailored trainer so that you can optimize it for your physique specifically. So um, as always, guys, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I try to pour a lot into this one. It's 45 minutes of me ranting, but um, it's, a, it's a topic I'm really passionate about because I, I, I love science and I love where it's progressing, but I don't ever want people to remember how important it is to get in the gym and test things out on yourself. And I'm doing that constantly and I want to share that with you constantly. Um, again, I want to encourage you to go subscribe to the YouTube channel youtube.com slash Cody McBroom one. We are really passionate about creating that right now, building it. Uh, all of our free guides are at tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash guides. You can get programs done for you in the app, tailoredtrainerapp.com. And last but not least, if you want to work with us specifically, you can head over to tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash online dash coaching. We would love to take you on and uh, coach you one-on-one. As always, thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time.